No, because iOS like saves battery by not refreshing tabs. Is there a keystroke that you can refresh all your tabs in a browser? What, what, keystroke? Key, key <laughs> it's an iPad. <laughs> Sure, you, have, you always have to have backups. We've learned that. There's a saying in the military that I heard. The saying in the military that I heard is two is one and one is none. Mm, mm-hmm. Always have backups. Yeah, I mean, sure. If you have if you have one weapon, you have no weapons. If you have two weapons, you have one weapon. That, I mean, that's, no, I mean, that's, that's literally the context in which I heard it because things fail. Things break. You I mean, you can only carry one weapon at a time. So, well, the idea is that you have redundant systems. Yeah, but if you have like multiple weapons, then well, as long as you keep your separation of concerns, you're all good. Totally. I mean, <laughs> you separate your one gun from your other backup gun, and then you carry two guns. That and is, then when you're going through the water in like Vietnam, you got to hold two guns on two hands. That's actually precisely exactly what you're supposed to do. Well, I mean, in Vietnam, they just had one gun, and they just held it above. They them. just had the one. And they walk through the waters. Or you could be super unrealistic like in, um, what was that movie? And there's been lots of war movies. There's No, it was it was a modern. Tropic Thunder? More modern, no, it was a serious one. G.I. Jane. Mm-hmm. So they're doing SEAL training or it was Marines. It was one of those. They're doing training in like the jungle. And they taught them to put condoms over the ends of their rifles and they go through water. In order to keep them dry. Isn't there other ways the water could get into a gun? Unless you have like a really big condom. I don't know. It was very unrealistic. Would they call them Gundams? But the the, the problem was is that it became a joke because they had a female Mm. around. Mm. Right? So very unintelligent, unenlightened soldiers would be like, hey, can you help me with this? Hey, Debbie Moore with the shaved hat, can can you teach me how to put this on? And it was really cringy. It was really terrible. Don't ever make that joke, gentlemen. Gentlemen of the world, don't ever do that. But yeah, it, they would be walking through the jungle with these condoms on. And the thing is that you don't take them off to shoot the gun. So they're getting ready to like storm this castle or whatever. You're sitting there pointing their guns. They have condoms on them. It was ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. I mean, the bullet will go through. That's the idea, but it still looks condom. ridiculous. It still looks ridiculous. <coughs> we got we to gotta copyright that. Gundam, 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 Gundam Wing, Gundam. Yeah, see, that's that's a problem. I feel like that's a problem. That one, I don't know if you can copyright. Yeah, I, that that's going to be an issue with higher art and things like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Greg, what are you looking at? What are you looking up? I'm just refreshing all the tabs on my iPad. You can't do that with like one. No, because iOS like saves battery by not refreshing tabs. Is there a keystroke that you can refresh all your tabs in a browser? What, what, key, key, keystroke. <laughs> it's an iPad. Uh, I thought it was a. I thought it was a new computer. Actually, yeah, you can do Command R and it refreshes the single tab you're on. Well, yeah, I, I would certainly <laughs> hope so. I don't know. You know, I didn't. It didn't occur to me that it would do that. I just these are, did it. Remember, these are the new computers. Right, just, did, you, did you know you can use a mouse now with your with your well, iComputer? computer? They're they're really trying to make sure you don't do that. People have been saying that it actually works surprisingly well. 
And it would make sense because if you got a, like a Bluetooth mouse. Or they had it in the roll. simulator for like, it, mouse support has been enabled in the simulator for like years. Yeah, but it's actually in, it's actually a ship with iOS 13 this time, right? Well, we'll see. That's what they say. Do they pull features this late? They could. I, uh, I don't think it's that big of a deal. I think they literally just like enable the flag and then mice work. I mean, that's just, but who knows? you know, making sure they have all their ducks in a row before they activate <clears throat> new features. I think that's pretty solid software engineering, if you ask me. Yeah, I mean, it's probably been in there forever, and it's just been disabled. Well, Chrome has that, too, where they have tons of flags and stuff that are actually in the build, but most of them are turned off. But you can always go to Chrome flags and turn whatever you want on and off if you want. If you're, What's if the you craziest Chrome flag? I don't know. Let's let's look at it. Let's see what's going on with the Chrome flags these days. Chrome flags. The thing is, some of these are so out there that even if I sit here and read them, I can't understand what they are. Composited render layer borders. Did you forget to take Benadryl? No. It's because you have, remember, you have a cat. I know, but did you take it? I did take my pills this morning, yes. Mm. I should have taken more. Tint GL composited content. Partial swap. What do you think partial swap is? It probably does something with like swap space or... That's partial swap to true. behavior. <laughs> Very descriptive. UI disable partial swap. Something with the UI, that's weird. Enable reader mode, that's kind of cool. That's something that Firefox has had for a while. Um, just natively, not, not even an extension type of deal, but that's pretty neat. And it, reader mode is actually very sneakily, very kind of without actually being, it's an ad blocker. Because guess what reader mode does? It takes out all the ads. You know who else has a reader mode? My iPad. On Chrome, though? On Safari. On Safari, pretending to be Chrome? No, like on real Safari. Safari, Safari. Oh, here's a good one. Experimental extension APIs. It doesn't even say what the experimental APIs are. It just says you can turn them on or off. History manipulation intervention. What? What is that? If a page does a client-side redirect or adds to the history without a user gesture, you can skip it on back forward UI. Hmm. It actually makes a lot of sense. Well, they, there's a whole thing in Chrome where they want you to actually initiate push state. Like the user has to do something to initiate a push state. Right. They don't want people abusing the back button or stealing, stealing the user's back button, which I totally agree with. Yeah, but you know who does that? Single page apps. It's true, but if you are responsibly using single page apps, then you are making sure that your back and forward buttons work correctly. Yeah, it's less, but I less mean, than the day. Whenever you're scrolling on a web page and then it adds like a new URL to the like it used to be like a hash bang, you're technically if you don't do it without replace state, like you actually just that is not so that's the, you're talking about something different. I'm glad you brought that up because those are two different things. Right, there is a, a situation in some single page apps where if you navigate through, mm -hmm. you might be showing a different URL, but you don't necessarily have a deep link into that. Mm -hmm. And so, if you hit the back button, you don't go back one page; you go to the page you want before that whole yeah. But what domain. that same functionality that you used to have in like Backbone, where you would just you know change the URL with a hash bang, which wouldn't actually add to the history because it's not a real URL. That's what React Router does. See, so that's different because. That, React Router does it. The that could be way. two different things. That could be <laughs> you're using an ID as an identifier in the page. So that's like 
from the jQuery days, if you want to like mm-hmm. do a nice smooth scroll to a link, you're still on the same page. Well, that's because it used to be it used to be hash, which is not a legit URL, so it would be ignored. Right, it would be the the pound sign, yeah. But now that we sign. have history and you have the history npm package, which is what runs React Router, it actually does window dot push state and window dot replace state. Right, which is what it should be doing. Yeah, but then it actually changes your back button. But that also depends, though, because you could run into the captured scroll situation, which the Mac Pro site of the the great Mac Pro site design disaster of 2014. I love how you remember these things. Well, it was such a it was such a huge oversight, in my opinion. For for those who don't know what I'm talking about, so when the original trash can Mac Pro was released, Apple very kindly built a nice, beautiful website to go with it. And what they did on this website was that you were able to scroll, but any scroll motion would be what's called a captured scroll. It'll only let you go down a section of the page at a time and it didn't give you any flexibility in between. So if you scroll a little bit down or a lot of it down, you go down one section. If you scroll a little bit or a lot of it down again, you go down again one section. Just so they could have this like smooth, beautiful animation of the exploded view of the thing. When you hit the back button, guess what happens? Mm. You go up one section. Yeah, but that's that's what that's what I've seen that happen before because that's what it used to be when you would do like a when you when people first started using routers like that, you would hit back and it would back through all of the pages. Yeah, all the don't page. don't do that. No, but like it's actually quite easy to do that. That's what I'm saying. But you shouldn't be doing that. It is irresponsible development to do that. No, I, I'm saying like when before like React Router and all those things happened. You the default behavior of a lot of those jQuery apps, like the jQuery like um, routing things, was to actually change the history, and you would actually go back and you would scroll. Like there was a big website I know that we worked on where it would do that. Yeah, you're not supposed to do that. Okay, well, it's a shortcut. It's not. No, I'm I'm saying that they didn't do it because they were like actively doing it. That's that's what the that's what that stuff did. Right, but you have to, as a responsible developer, you have to make sure that you do not infringe on the user experience of what they expect the back button to do at any point in time in your application. So on a page like the Mac Pro page, when you hit the back button, since you are on the same page, you're assuming that you're going to whatever page you were on before you came to the Mac Pro page. But no, you go up one section. And this page wasn't, it wasn't like three or four sections. It was, I want to say 12 or 15 sections. So if, you, if you've gotten two thirds of the way down this page, guess how many times? You have to hit back buttons you have to hit the back button every single time to get all the way back up to the page, and then you hit it again to get back to the page. Well, I know that it's not that hard. It's not that hard, and so that's why everybody that. should do it. Be responsible developers, folks. No, do a good it's job. not that hard to do it incorrectly. Don't hijack the back button. What else? Um, what else we got here on these flags? What else we got? Experimental QUIC protocol. Do you know what that is? Q-U-I-C, quick. It's capitalized, so it must stand for something. No idea. Q-U-I-C, proto, can't type, protocol. Quick protocol, it's an internet protocol. Quick is an experimental general purpose transport layer network protocol initiated Initially designed by Jim Roskind at Google, implemented and deployed in 2012. Announced publicly in 2013 as experimental broadened, broadened, what is that word? Broadened? 
Is this supposed to be something like a replacement for TCP IP or something? And describe to the IETF. That's not very descriptive. No. Uh, yeah, so, 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 it seems like most of these flags are also not very descriptive. Like, next oh, one, latest stable JavaScript features. Experimental JavaScript. WebAssembly baseline compiler. Those kind of make sense. WebAssembly thread support. Ooh, ooh mm -hmm. that's a fun one. Future V8 VM features. Mm -hmm. Those all sound fine. It does, but it doesn't tell you what they are. Well, it's saying like, <laughs> do you want to use like ES17 stuff? No, but the thing is for future V8 <clears throat> VM features, that's probably, you know, that's like, the a, V8 that's compiler. probably like a re release branch or something in, in their repo. Yeah. But it doesn't tell you what it is is what I'm saying. Like, what are these new features? It's just a catch-all future features. Yeah. V8 garbage collection features. Okay, wait, wait. I found the end. Quick aims to be a nearly equivalent to a TCP connection, but with a much reduced latency. Oh. It does this primarily through two changes that rely on an understanding of the behavior of HTTP traffic, which I'm too lazy to read. So, so it is a replacement for TCP IP. Well, it, yeah. That makes sense. If it's faster, I'm down for it. Experimental but web platform But it uses UDP features. as its basis. Is that good or bad? It does not include loss recovery. Instead, each quick stream oh. is separately flow controlled and data lost re is retransmitted at the level of quick, not UDP. This means that if an error occurs in one stream, like the favicon example, the protocol stack can continue servicing other streams independently. This can be very useful in perform improving performance on error-prone links. As in most cases, considerable additional data may be received before TCP notices a packet is missing or broken. And all of this data is blocked or even flushed when the error is corrected. In quick, the data is free to be processed while single multiplex stream is repaired. It sounds like a predecessor to HTTP2. Actually sounds really cool. I don't know, there's a lot of smart people build stuff. A lot of smart people build a lot of cool things. Yeah. What else they got on here? Touch Events API? Sure. Touch Events API. Interesting. Very interesting. New password form parsing. Uh-oh. So the autocomplete is getting smarter. I guess I'm okay with that. Do you Riveting. use the autocomplete? Riveting. Do you use the browser-based autocomplete? I mean, for your forms or no? No. I usually don't for for a couple of reasons. I don't for one specific reason, but I'll hear yours. A couple of reasons. One, I live in an apartment, and every single form that I've ever seen that tries to handle apartments handles it differently. Some of them want you to do it all on one line on the address line. Some of them have separate lines where the apartment number comes after the street line. Some of them have the apartment number come before the street line. Mm -hmm. So those are enough variety of cases where the autocomplete messes it up almost every single time. So it's not even worth the amount of time to go do it. So I just type everything in. Mm -hmm. Also, it allows me to control which sites, you know, save my information and whatnot. Yeah. I don't use it because I'm always, I'm always working on forms. <laughs> so... And yes, then it'll autofill my information when I'm trying to like autofill some junk information. Yeah, you don't <laughs> you don't want to submit your actual real information to like a lead site or something. Mm -hmm. Heaven forbid. HTTP over quick to be renamed HTTP three. We're not even on two yet. Hey, always pushing the boundaries. IETF agrees them. to base the next major iteration of HTTP on Google's Quick protocol. Wow, this thing we've stumbled upon a gem here. Quick protocol. It sounds really good. It sounds like basically what, like asynchronous multi-threading. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that's what HTTP2 is. HTTP2 has multi-threading. But does it still do this thing where it, it maintains the other threads when you miss a packet? 
Uh, I don't know about that, but HTTP2 does... Well, Quick stands for UDP can internet connections, and by itself, Google's attempt to rewrite at rewriting the TCP protocol as an improved technology that combines HTTP2, TCP, UDP, and TLS for encryption, among many other things. Google wants Quick to slowly replace both TCP and UDP as the new protocol of choice for moving binary data across the internet, and for good reasons, as tests have proven that Quick is both much faster and more secure because of its encrypted by default implementation. Current HTTP over Quick protocol draft uses the newly released TLS 1.3. So compared to TCP, which is 100, mega, 100 milliseconds for a round trip, TCP plus TLS is 200 milliseconds for a round trip. And then Quick is zero milliseconds. I think, I, well, it's not on a round trip. I think that, because there's two numbers, it says zero and then 100. So I think it's zero milliseconds to make a connection and then 100 milliseconds to send data. That's way faster. It's much faster. It's about as fast as TCP without TLS. But it has TLS and it's encrypted. Very interesting. That's pretty cool. I like that. I think it's going to make things like, I don't know, programming lazy loading for images or something like that. I don't Does know. it work in IE though? Probably not. Well, IE is Chrome now, so it's fine. Well, not, not, that's the thing. Not the <laughs> IEs that matter. I, I9... Yeah, like the we were supporting are still nine for a while, right? Mm -hmm. I remember when we first started working at the same place that we were still talking about supporting nine, which is absurd. I'm pretty I sure those, having... those folks are still on Windows XP. You I'm pretty download, sure they are. You can download Internet Explorer 11 on Windows XP, but like uh, IE9, I think was the what XP originally shipped with. So you imagine those people have. I think it shipped with eight. Oh, geez. Service Pack 1, I think, brought 9. Think or Service Pack right. 2 brought 9. One of them, yeah. Service Pack 1 or 2 brought IE9. Mm -hmm. That was literally what, like... We're talking like... That's got to be 20 years ago. We're talking 2004. Like early 2000s. The yeah, early, the I had, early aughts. I had Windows XP when I was playing Counter-Strike. Because I remember because it was either... X, XP came out after 2000, and I had Windows NT 2000 when everybody was using Windows 98, I, I installed Windows NT. All the, all the people out there who are on Windows XP, let me be very clear about something. You need to stop using that. It's been end of life for, I'm going to say, at least five years. It's based on Windows 2000, man. Windows 2000 was solid. Windows 2000 was solid, but life goes on. <clears throat> life it's goes true. on. Let's see what other flags we can find here. Let's see whatever, what other good ones we got. In-product help demo mode? What? Do you, do you think having a demo of how a browser works would help you? I mean, what do browsers really do? You just type in a web page and they load them. Yeah, it's like, it's a blank canvas. That's <coughs> the idea behind the, the browsers. I guess it makes sense for something like, like, uh, like Slack. Like when you log into a, a new Slack room for the first time, you know how it tries to give you the tour with the little mm. tool tips and whatnot. That makes sense. Because Slack has a lot of features that you need to kind of... I always skip those and through. then wonder well, what the program does. <laughs> like, no matter what program it is, I'm like, skip, 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 skip. I'll figure this out later. And I'm like, how do I, how do I go back to that? Basically, in Slack, everything is in Command-K or Control-K if you're on a window, a PC-based uh, keyboard. Control-K. All that stuff, all that stuff goes right there. So you can, like, type in the name of a person. You can DM them. You can type in the name of a channel. You can DM them. Uh, if you do... Command K, and then if you just hit enter, it'll go to your first unread message. 
a command palette for the thing. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's almost as good as the command palette on your personal website. Except almost as Aaron good. Boyack told me that doesn't work. What <laughs> he would because he is a he is a QA person. Shout shout out to, shout out to Aaron, friend of the show, IRL. He is a a natural QA person. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing there. Well, maybe you should take some of that feedback and you know. No, I did. I told him I was going to fix it, and then the uh, the ref is broken. So basically, when I removed Bulma, I removed the the form component and the modal, and I had the ref working at one point in time, where whenever you would um, whenever you would open up the command palette, it would automatically focus the input. And then I broke it at one point in time, and then I completely broke it when I switched off of Bulma. So now it's like not even styled correctly. So what uh, what component is that field now? Is it just a like a form field? No, the like field everything still works. It's just the ref doesn't work, and then the styling's all broken. Well, and the ref then, should still work. No, I think I broke it before. Well, because it was a ref against a, it was set up inside of the modal component or something. And then whenever it opened, it would target the input that was inside of the other component. And I think what it is is that the the Bulma components did forwarding refs. Oh. And I don't think that the React modal that I used does. The React simple modal, I don't think it forwards refs. So it thinks you're <clears throat> refing the modal inside of the field. Yeah, it doesn't pass it through to the fields that are inside Interesting. of it. <clears throat> you might have to like formic that bad boy or something. I don't know. It already is formic. No, actually, that one is not. Or it is. I don't remember. I, no, I think it is. Everything I, everything, all the forms I do are usually formic. Formic's pretty good stuff. Yeah. I actually listened to um, Mr. Jared Palmer, who is the mm-hmm. maintainer of formic. He was on React Podcast a while back. I think it was right when uh, the guy kind of restarted. It was one of the first interviews that he did. Hour and a half on, guess what? TypeScript. About how great it is, about how you should use it. Mm, you ever looked at TypeScript code? Yes, I've written TypeScript code. It's pretty fantastic. It's pretty ugly looking. Well, it looks fine to me. I actually, I actually prefer it because well, until you start getting into like, like generic types and crap, like you're in Java and you're like, this, I'm not writing Java. I don't know what this is. Well, that's the that's the uh, that's the escape hatch, right? That's your those are your training wheels essentially. Like if you ever feel like you don't know what you're doing, you just put any and don't worry about it. It's yeah, fun. and then you leave that in there and you're not even really using TypeScript. And, but then you have these stupid brackets that look like you're doing, you know, you don't, you've never seen like a hash set or a set, like a map, a hash map inside of Java. But you have to define the types that are in the hash maps. So you have to say like hash map, you know, string, number, string, object. And you, have then, to, you have to do that in uh, prop types as well if you're doing prop type definitions. So if you're using the prop types Why do types you use package, prop types if you use TypeScript? I don't understand. Well, it's usually one or the other. Yeah, I mean, I don't know why you would use prop types if you're using well, TypeScript. Because uh, you pass a type to object to it. I didn't choose the prop types if it was up to me. No, I, I mean, had I, my druthers, I think it would seen, be TypeScript. No, I think I've seen that before too. Like, why would you use prop types with TypeScript? Because you could just pass it a typed object and if that... I don't think you would use both. I've seen it. Unless prop you have with very TypeScript. specifically defined interfaces. Well, like that's for specific props, maybe, but I don't know why you would do that. Well, I think it's because... Um, Prop types are more like joy validation than they are like class or object or like right. type validation. Yeah. Whereas TypeScript is literally just type validation, but with there's more expressive 
terms and prop types than there are in TypeScript. Yes, that's true. Native typing. Like shape and stuff like that. Shape of, all that kind of crap. So it's more like a validation schema than it is type definition. Yeah. One of the things I'm working on at my office is a component library. And one of the pieces that go along with that is the documentation for the component library. And for that library, it was originally built with prop types, but there's a specific reason that our documentation site has a very special component called a prop table. And what it does is that it takes your prop type definition and turns it into a table Hmm. that you can look at. So you don't have to sit there and write out, as part of your documentation, you don't have to write out the definition of every single prop. It just builds a table and says, this is the name of the prop. This is the default value. This is the optional or required. This is a little note with it. Kind of sounds like JS docs. A little bit. I think it was different. I think there was a, there was a reason why it was built that way. It was right when I started. So I, not, I don't have perfect recollection why, but there is a reason it works actually really well. So that is a use case. Uh, normally, you would be picking either prop types. Is there a library that just parses prop types? Um, that is a good question. React DocGen? Yeah. Is that what it's called? Or are you just making that up? No, I know there were. I know that the guy who built that component used a package called DocGen. Parse prop types. Parse React prop types into a readable object. Oh, React DocGen. A CLI and toolbox for to extract information from React component files for documentation and general purposes. Generation purposes. Oh, this one's actually managed by the ReactJS project too. So, <clears throat> so you know it's good. You know it's good. You know it's good. Usage. React DocGen path. Dot, dot, dot. Why don't you, you could probably use that to, uh, I don't know, it seems like there, there could be a project in there somewhere where you could integrate that into, say, like your blog or something. It's like, hey, I look, look, I built these components. This is what they look like. I know it's very helpful for documentation, but mm-hmm. we were talking before about how our blogs could be our little diaries of mini inspirational documentation for ourselves. So maybe there's a little, there's an opportunity there. Might be something you could build. I had a lot of fun when I was doing the... So one of the things that I did on my trip, we were going to talk about uh, what I coded over the break, was like I I basically took the... Contentful has like a default um, way to parse their rich text field. And like basically what they give you is a JSON representation of the content that you put into the rich text field. And they standardized, I think, the long text and the rich text types into like a parsable thing that turns into like a standard JavaScript with all this like config. And there's like the annotations for each piece of, every single time there's like an annotated piece of writing, mm-hmm. like an italic or whatever, it'll say like this thing is italic and it's metadata around the, the field. So it's not just giving you like the I tag around it? No, it literally gives you a JSON object where the content is the text. Oh. And then there's a, there's a there's like an annotation to it that says this is italic. So is the text... The text comes through as like a string, right? But then there are other fields in that object that tell you what the string yeah. is. Yeah. And it like changes for every every chunk, single I thing. Guess. Yeah. It basically whenever the type whenever the type changes, it'll immediately like break and add another entry. And then that's the next piece. So it basically reads it linear, like top down, and it says, What's the first piece of entry? <clears throat> Whatever it is, it figures out what it is. And if it's like a if it's like a P tag, it'll turn it into a P tag. Interesting. If it's just a piece of text, it'll turn it into a p tag, and you can control how it 
basically like every single one of the blocks that comes in in the array, it just iterates over them and then calls the functions that you tell it to per type. And then it basically is a customized converter. How aggressive is it with the interpretation between what you actually type into the rich text field and what it gives you back in this JSON object? I mean, it's completely different. You, what you type in the field like looks like you're just typing. They basically right. took the whole rich text field and then every single thing that you can do in the rich text field, they've converted to, to a JSON. How object. does it handle like an empty line? Uh, it would probably come in as a text with an empty line. Or, well, that's the thing. P-tags solve that problem because if you don't, well, there's space between each P. So if you start a new, if you hit enter and start a new line, then there's space between. Yeah, because it's, bl- it's a block element. Okay, mm-hmm. that makes sense. But I don't know if you had like, I guess if you had a, an empty space, like if you intentionally, I think it would collapse it. I don't think it allows you to do that. What if you wanted to format it with empty spaces? I don't know. I guess the, the reason I'm asking is maybe that Markdown it, kind of has a way that it does that. Maybe there's a maybe there's a type of annotation that says this is an empty space, and then it just renders it as an empty P, or something that tells you to like use a break tag or HR tag or something like that. Maybe potentially, yeah, that would be the simplest way to do it. But again, that's not really flexible. That's really interesting that they do it that way, just because rich text is super problematic with little edge cases of like how stuff is formatted. Well, I think that's why they took the time to actually sit there and figure out how to like convert everything that they have in the rich text field as a known quantity. Right. And they converted the whole thing to a known JSON. And then they wrote a library on the other end that knows how to interpret everything in that JSON. And then you can control how it's rendered. It's actually really smart. So it just gives you, (laughs) it just gives you the text formatted lightly with some metadata around it. And then you can, you write your own, Wait, so there, does their kind of interpreter package like have preset definitions for everything? Yeah, and there's like a there's a type there's like a type. It'll be like so they call them like um, I'm trying to remember what it was, but it was like types dot paragraph or whatever. I don't know whatever it is. And then there was like um, probably should look it up. But there was like another thing that would annotate whether or not it was like marks dot italic or whatever. And then you could essentially say whenever the type is marks dot italic. It's like a hash map. So like whenever it comes across a certain type or a certain mark, then you write on the other end, it's like a, it calls basically a function in your configuration that essentially says like whenever it's marks.italic, call this function, and then that function returns a, a, some JSX. And then you say like M for italic. You could even separate it out even further and just build like a class names object or something like that well, that's the thing is they did it. They did it like really smart to where it's super generic. But you can basically like if you wanted to, you can convert like italics into strike throughs because there's no relationship between what you actually have in the editor and what shows up on your page. So their interpreter package is not opinionated. It just gives you a way to hook this yeah. is input that's coming into some sort of specific output. Yeah, and if you don't define what italic is, for instance, it'll just leave it as a regular piece of text. Oh, so it won't be italic at all? Yeah, it would just, oh, it would just put the text in there. Interesting. So you still have to supply some mm-hmm. sort of styling or some sort of end goal of this metadata? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. It's, pretty, it's actually pretty smart. But then when I did all of that, I realized that I don't know if I really... I mean, it works right now, but there's a the couple things that I noticed. One 
which is the biggest reason why I kind of want to change it, is that you can't really define, if you can do code syntax, so you can say like, this is a block of code. And there's like marks dot, I don't know, code or pre, I think it was like pre-formatted. Um, you can do that. Let me pull it up so I can look at it actually. Yeah, so code blocks usually are pre-tags that wrap around a code tag. Yeah, it's so called... So the inline one, so like you know how there's, sometimes there's a word that's like code formatted, but it's like in the flow of like a paragraph or mm -hmm. sentence. That's a code tag by itself. A pre-tag around the code gives you the whole block. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's pre then code. Yep. Yeah, so you'd have to kind of define both those cases. Yeah, so like what they, we see what happened is, so I'm looking at the code right now. What they did is that the code that's that's marked, um, yeah, it, it ended up being really weird. There wasn't like a mark, unless I did it wrong. So again, with a grain of salt, I could have just done it wrong. But basically there was like marks.bold, marks.italic, blocks.paragraph, blocks.embeddedasset, which was an image. And then, you know, it could be an image or a video, but in this case, it's only, I don't think there's a video entry, but essentially like you can define your own types. So what they, so what I ended up having to do is that the code block ended up becoming a text field, like a regular text. And then I had to say if the content had a mark of code, which I guess I probably don't need to do. Maybe there is a marks.code and I just did this really stupidly. But either way, if the text block had a mark that was code, then I turned it into a highlight.js uh, react highlight um, library or like library implementation. But the problem is, is that you can't define the type of the language. Oh yeah, that's a tricky one. That's a pretty new thing. Yeah, but you, but you can in Markdown because you can do you tick, can tick, 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 JavaScript, yes. tick, 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 Java, tick, 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 whatever, CSS. CSS, whatever it is. And then if you use Prism or Prismatic, I think it is, which comes by default, I don't know if it's default or it's really easy to install with Gatsby. Prism is the one in Gatsby. I have a story <laughs> about that, but continue. Okay. So you can use that, but it has to come in as Markdown in order for Prism to work. Yes. It's so expecting I had, Markdown. Yeah. So I couldn't use any of that at all. So then I ended up having to use React Highlight because Prism required that it was Markdown. And it also required that it knew the language. But then it does like really crazy, Prism does some really crazy stuff, which is how like um, Dan Abramov is able to add like emojis into his code. Yes. Because Prism is pretty cool. So I didn't really have that. So then I just did React Highlight and it worked. So on my, um, on my site, where'd it go? On my site, basically, um, I have like an example blog article that I was just using to format. And I have like fully highlighted code because oh, I was yeah. able to get it to work. And it has my own, it has a theme. It's not like, basically with React Highlight, you can change the way that everything looks. Like it's kind of like um, VS Code where you see like, if this, if the type of whatever is like a class or yeah, a it's keyword. Yeah, it's a full theme. You can essentially change it to any color. So that I was, what I, that I was trying to do there is make 1984 work. Okay, but then I had all kinds of weird problems where, um, uh, what is this thing? Terminal.css has its own styles for and you have collisions. code blocks, and I had collisions. Yes, so I had to do like inherit, like background inherit, important, and all kinds of weird shit to make it work. Yes, 
I'm so glad you brought this <clears> up because that's precisely the same thing that I ran so into. So you ran into that same issue with Prism, so I maybe I shouldn't go thing. that direction. It's not even a Prism-specific thing. So I went down this rabbit hole of trying to implement a little, little bit of syntax highlighting on my site because you called me out for it last time we talked yeah, about it. Yeah, you were like, I'm not going to do it. And I was like, what are you talking about? I actually was just really getting sick of just having... I think my placeholder was just orange text on like a dark navy mm. code block background, which in of itself is fine, but it's all the same color. Can't you, you know, you can't talk about code, man, unless you have, that was super annoying to me. That was all one color. That was a big yeah. problem. So I had to go, go in there and change it. And I was trying to implement highlight. Highlight was not working. And I went and tried to look it up and there was a GitHub issue on Gatsby from like three years ago where Kyle, shout out Kyle, got on there and said, I am so sorry for picking highlight initially, guys. I'm going to switch everything over to Prism. Hmm. So he switched Gatsby over to Prism, and apparently it's been kumbaya ever since. And so I was like, okay, well, maybe I shouldn't try to use highlight then, even though Greg told me to. I'm going to go, I'm going to go with Prism. So I went and installed Prism. I don't remember if I told you to actually use... Well, you were saying that you wanted to use highlight. No, I said I wanted to be highlighted is what I meant. I no, didn't... but you were talking about using highlight. I think I just looked at something. Because I initially was going to use Prism, but Prism, I thought, was the older, out-of-date one. No, it's like the new hotness. It's like the new hotness. Mm -hmm. So I went to go look up Prism. I installed everything, and I got a bunch of collisions with the existing CSS. I got a bunch of collisions with what Ghost was trying to serve me as that type where, like, in terms of how it wrapped the actual element itself. And it was just a lot going on. So I have, like, kind of... I have it kind of halfway working. I'm not super happy with it. I totally see it as the kind of thing where it's going to annoy me enough to where I'm going to keep chipping away at it over time. And then one of these days, I'm just going to break and like work on it all night and have it done. That's kind of how I approached it. Like I, I was going to, I kind of wanted to, I was kind of thinking about a lot of things all at once. Like I wanted to potentially, I don't want to write my blog not in Markdown. That's like the first off. Yes. So the way that I chose to do it originally, I didn't, I didn't quite understand how Contentful had, they had the rich text editor and then they also have this long text. And at first it's not very apparent because I think they used to only have the long text. And they called it long text? Let me check what it's called. I think it's called long text. And I think that that was what they had originally. And then they made this super crazy rich text field Thing with all the validation that I just talked about to replace that. So I think it's because a lot of people maybe don't, you know, don't use Markdown if they're not writers right, or bloggers. So they created the rich text field for those people. I think, I don't know, I'm speaking for them. I don't know what they I do. I mean, rich text is something you kind of have to have. Like people, anybody who's ever used WordPress is used to yeah, providing true. content in rich text. So that's a thing that you need. Yeah, and they're more, people are more used to clicking... Um, this is the wrong contentful account. Um, people are used to clicking, are used to doing that, to like using rich text fields. But then a lot of people that are like more, um, like, I don't know, like more nerdy or more modern, I guess, I don't know how to put it. They love Markdown. Like I, I write all my documentation and stuff in Markdown. So yeah, anybody who's ever maintained a readme in a GitHub or... You know, yeah. tried to put code into some sort of blog post. Probably preferred Markdown since then. That's yeah. the thing that it does really, really well. Yeah, and uh, when I first learned Markdown, I didn't. Um, 
I didn't really understand it. I had the same exact experience. I'm so and it glad took you me said many, that. many years. I was like, why? It. I was like, I'm looking at this. I'm going, I'm either going to be writing text or I'm going to be writing code. Why would I yeah. want to mix, mix, mash and do both? And I was so wrong back then. I was so wrong about everything. Yeah. It's called long, long text. Long, long text. Yeah. Well, it's long, com- like long is the short name. Long text is the long name. So the way they describe it is rich text is text formatting with references and media. Text is titles, names, paragraph, lists of names. And then they have, oh, sorry. And then you click text. Yeah. And then you say short text, exact search, useful for titles, names, tags, URLs, and email. Long text, full text search, useful descriptions, text paragraphs, and articles, comma, articles. So I guess long text is actually designed for making blog articles, whereas the rich text field is described as, uh, yeah, doesn't it just says it's, it's, it's rich cooler. Text, yeah. Rich text is not supported in Internet Explorer 11. Really? Yeah, for more information, see the FAQ. Why? Read the FAQ. If the... That's interesting. If the if the thing that's interpreting your your data coming back, if it's not prescribing an opinion about styling, then where would the incompatibility come from? I think it's from their. Lo- I don't know. Are they it, using like ES six or something? That like- no, it's just it just gives you when you query it, it just gives you a J. It's probably in the parsing logic because it's just giving you a JSON object. But if you want to iterate through all the types, all the nodes yourself, and then just interpret the JavaScript, then it probably would work. Does I nine not do like maps and filters or something like that? Like I-9 something super does basic. Not do a lot of things. Oh man! But oh, I don't man. think that they're. I don't know what they're doing internally. It's probably because whatever they're doing in their in their library, the rich text parser is probably using stuff that's not supported. It's not like they don't have their. And I don't think they're babeling. I don't think they're. They're probably not babeling. It. It's probably just native. Yeah. I don't know. I clicked on the the article and then it's not here. The description isn't here anymore. So, don't use i nine guys. I don't know. Oh wait, here it goes. This article. This is the concrete list. Which browsers does Contentful support? The Contentful application runs on all modern desktop browsers. We commit to support the latest version, although it should run on older versions too. However, we do not support mobile browsers. I think that's for the actual um, editor. Oh, uh, okay. I think it doesn't. It doesn't imply that you're talking about the sites, the things that you use with it. It just means that the the actual content. If you're UI, logging into your account and trying to write something, it's not going to work. Yeah, it's not going to work. It doesn't. It also doesn't work on phones. Like they don't support mobile. That makes sense. I don't know why they don't. Well, I mean, I, I guess I mean, I how do. much content editing are you really going to be doing on? Well, a phone? it would be nice if they if, if they had like an app that allowed you to to like write blog articles because like. Okay, so here it gets into like what I kind of really wanted to talk about. So okay, tell us. For, for this small little snippet here. There's a couple things that I learned when I went in and like really configured and did all the CSS and all the stuff for my site. One of them is that, as with everything, Contentful is a product, right? So they divide their product into a set of free, free features that you can just use to a certain point. Uh, in terms of traffic and amount of people that are viewing and pulling the content, like how many people are pulling images from the CDN and all the stuff, their CDN. There's a certain limit to how much of that you can do for free. Then there's also a limit on some particular features because they always have to have upsells, right, that make you want to buy. I mean, why else would you want to buy their service, yes. right? So one of the upsells that they have is 
the ability to publish content to specific destinations. So you can say like, you can name a destination staging. You can name it. It could even be multi-tenants. You can say like, this is one particular brand, but the same, you know, their version of this content. Their, or like whatever, you know? Um, so you could say like, this is brand A's implementation of my content, brand B, brand C, whatever. Or you can say, this is staging, this is production, this is QA, this is whatever, this is a preview environment, this is a preview environment, one, two, three. And if you pay, you can make as many preview environments as you want. Oh. But what they end up doing is they end up becoming like a very specific um, app key and I don't and or URL. I think it's I think it's just app key. But essentially, that particular app. So you can say like publish this to Android, publish this to iOS, publish this to. Oh. But you name those. They're very flexible. You name those environments. It's not like they're saying you have an iOS, you have an Android, whatever. It's just like you create the space, the subspace, um, like target, essentially. And you can say like publish this blog article to Android, publish this one to iOS, publish this one to staging, but not to prod. Yeah, but it's up to you to keep track of all that stuff. Yeah, but it's up to you to define and keep track of all those things. But one of the things that was very interesting that kind of ties into, we had a conversation while I was gone about, you know, whether or not it was worth it to do all the CI work that I did. It seems, you know, it's working right now pretty well. But there's one thing that I could could not get working without paying, I guess, and then spending some extra time trying to sort out how to do it. But basically, they have hooks on content being published. You can say, like, whenever you publish a piece of content, run this webhook. Is right? it any content or specific fields? Any content. Okay. And I noticed a couple interesting things that I'll get in. I don't want to go in too many, too many levels of tangents. I often do that where I, like, well, all of a sudden we're, like, in, inter, not Interstellar, what's the other movie he made? Uh, Memento. Spinning, no, the spinning top. Shutter. Uh, no. <laughs> the obvious one about the with the water. And the, Inception. Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. I don't want to get too inceptioned, but basically, like, you can create. I started thinking about Inception. I don't know what I was talking about. <laughs> um, you can create uh, environments. Well, I'll go back to the environments because I don't probably remember what I was talking about. But rich, rich text. No, too far back. You can create separate environments and then you can publish content to them. Oh, sorry. What I was going to say was that when you publish, there's no way to say, like, whenever this content is free, is like saved, but not published, run a build. Oh, so it doesn't have a hook for that immediate step? It doesn't really. It, it has a few hooks. So they have the ability for you to define webhook, uh, the times that the webhooks run. Let me pull them up. Like cron jobs? No. Um, where the, okay, hold on. Uh, webhooks. So they allow you to define like on production, basically the webhook triggers whenever you archive an entry or an asset, whenever you unarchive and enter an asset, which makes sense because if you were like archiving a blog article, it would trigger a build and then remove the blog off, article yeah. off your site. If you then decide to unarchive it, these are all optional. I know you don't have to check all these things, but I was thinking in my brain, like if you archive something and then you unarchive it, you know, like a couple days later or whatever, say you want to pull down an article really quick and then bring it back up when you fix something about, I don't know, whatever you were doing. Typos. Typos, I don't know. We, we would just fix that. But like if you were for some reason to take an article down and then put it back up, when you take it down, it would do a build, 
deploy it. When you unarchive it, it would do a build and push it out. So you can also publish and unpublish content. I don't. I've never seen the option to unpublish it, but apparently you can do that. Gotta be. I've, I haven't seen. That's kind of the same thing as archive, but I don't know. Um, so basically, this production one triggers whenever you archive, unarchive, publish, unpublish any any content essentially, and then. But the problem is the staging one. You have the same options. You can so I basically did it on publish and unpublish, but that means that whenever you publish a piece of content, it deploys it to both staging and production. That's not exactly what you want. No, but then the only other options are create, save, auto save, archive. Sorry, create, save, and auto save. Those are the the earlier steps. Create is only whenever you create a new article, but don't publish it. Great. You can't actually save content. It auto saves. So the only time that you can save. Um, there's no button. There's that no says save, save button. No, because it auto saves. But then what I noticed is that when you auto save, when you basically make it so that it builds on any auto save, it will. It'll essentially. It will do a build to staging whenever you change anything. So if yeah, you so just it's, like, it's it's looking at all the content, all every content type. Yeah, but like literally, there's no there's no debouncing. So, without what I'm getting at is without oh. being able to expressly say like I want to publish this to staging first and like go through some kind of like workflow to be like publish this, but only publish it to staging. Oh. Get an approval, then publish it to prod. Like my blog doesn't need that, but say you had that workflow. Yeah, you can't actually do that without paying. And I th- when you pay, which obviously this is like this makes perfect sense. They want you to pay monthly. For contentful, which I might end up doing eventually. Right now, I haven't yet because I'm trying to save money. But you know, eventually, I might do it because I don't have a problem paying for their service because it's a good service. Um, if it does exactly what I need it to do, because like, you're paying a ton of money for Ghost, I'm paying thirty dollars a month for Ghost, but yeah. it does so many things that I need it to do. It's pretty fantastic. Yeah, I mean, like if I uh, if if I was to, pay, I don't know if I'd pay thirty bucks a month for contentful. It's quite a lot. Um, I think that is what they're, they're probably going to cost about that much. But either way, like, I would pay for it if I could have that feature and I knew it would work. But the problem I'm getting at is, like, if you autosave, I had it set to that originally. Autosave, uh, I had it on create, save, and autosave for the staging webhook. But every single time that you would change literally anything. You type one letter. You type one letter and defocus the field, it autosaves. And it tries to build. Builds to staging. Ooh. And, and there's then, no throttle, there's no any kind of rate limiting that you can put in or that they have themselves? No, because you can't control, the webhook isn't like logic that you can run. Holy cow. So this is where like I found a really interesting combination of Contentful's ability to auto-publish and do all these things, and then CircleCI's ability to accept those things and do stuff with them. So... CircleCI is switching from the old way that they did things, which is like a circle.yaml, which basically just has jobs, what they call jobs. Yeah. And then you could trigger jobs with the API, right? Yes. They switched that to this thing called workflows. And workflows are neat because you can, you can automatically trigger them. Like you can define in your circle.yaml that this workflow gets triggered every five hours. Like they have a cron tool. Yeah. They have the ability for it to realize when a job gets triggered multiple times in a row really quickly before the job finishes, it cancels the previous build and then starts a new one. Oh. So there's like all these things that it can just do. Yeah, so you handle that you handle that part yourself rather than letting 
Circle CI or like Netlify or something like that to try to figure mm-hmm. out the builds itself. That's actually well, really clever. The canceling of unnecessary workflows you don't control. It just does it. Oh, okay. But you, there are other things that you can do. You could theoretically, uh, if you have your workflow separated out, you build some sort of logic in front of that. I mean, I could think of some ways that you could, but basically, what I ended up having, and there's a couple other things like going into like the rabbit hole. But there's a couple other things that I did that were really interesting. So there's this whole thing on Contentful side that I want to finish first. But basically, there's there's no way to say publish to staging unless you pay for the ability to have what they call, I think they call them workspaces. I don't remember what they call them. But um, you can create... Like projects or something like that? There, yeah, there's like a way to create something like targets or I don't know what it's called. But either way, like that thing exists. And then I think if I did that, that would work because, oh, it's environments. Uh, duh. duh. So upgrade your space to our latest features. So space types and pricing. Let's see. So it sounds I think like it was it, kind of expensive. It sounds like environments yeah, is not just the environment itself, but also kind of the, the whole pipeline. Yeah. It's like a pipeline tool. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, microspace for teams working on a single purpose sites, mobile apps, and IoT. It's $39 a month. So, and so you that, that gives you access to like your main one, your, your prod, if you will. And then all these other individual environments like you were talking about before, staging or naming them, whatever. But then like this, the paid version gives you access to the actual pipeline tools where you can separate and say, build prod on save, but do not build. Yeah, I think so. Well, it's not. Environments. It's, like you, it's like a published target. You say publish to... I think you get that with the microspace. For $39 a month, I'm pretty sure you get that. But you only get two locales in the microspace because they have the ability for you to make any field IETN. So you can essentially define like a field type and then change it to different languages. I thought I heard music, but I think it's my cat's water thing. It sounded like music for a second. It's very weird. Um, yeah, do it again. It's freaking me out. Anyways, yeah, so you can do two locales. So you can have like English, Spanish, whatever. But to have 10 locales, you need to pay $879 a month. That's a lot. But I, they, they do a lot of cool stuff for language translation. For I think it, that pricing actually does make sense though because uh, adding additional locales is not an incremental increase. It's exponential. Well, it's just, it's just more data. Like they, they already have, I mean, they have to, you know, make their money for the features that they well, build. Well, keeping, keeping that information in sync, this is actually what I was going to ask you about is that on projects that we've worked on before, keeping edited content or content managed content in sync across various different environments at various different stages of quote-unquote build or, or production readiness is a very difficult problem. Mm-hmm. And so I was interested to hear about how Contentful was dealing with that right? Typically you want one single source of truth in terms of your content and then all your triggers to be based on that. But if you have something like a prod and then you have some sort of other quote lower unquote environment, those don't necessarily need to be in sync all the time, but sometimes they do. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes a thing of you have to be able to pick and choose when those builds occur, like what is the triggers. And so webhooks are super convenient in terms of keeping everything in sync exactly the same even on those free tiers i mean they they give you that ability to do that it's when you have to separate that out into different stages on different environments where that could can get kind of tricky 
Yeah, but I mean, and so it makes sense for it to be the paid paid site. But you imagine like even WordPress has the ability for you to save but not publish and then preview content on a custom URL. But it's only one though. Great, I just need one. I don't need like fourteen environments. I just need one. I just need staging and prod. <clears throat> I've got I've got an Electron app. I've got a native Android app. I've got a native iOS. I don't app. have that as my portfolio. I have a web app. I have two staging prod. And you were even telling me I shouldn't even have staging, which is potentially okay. Some sort of preview environment actually does make sense. Um, I just have it. I wanted it because I am like writing actual features and code and integrating content from Contentful into something that I want to preview before I publish it. But granted, in the, in the grand scheme of things, if I was like writing something and I deployed it to Prod and it broke the site, I could fix it before somebody even would notice. Yeah, that's true. But I just wanted to do it because I wanted, like, fundamentally, my goal for this project was to build it like it was a production app as a demonstration of what I can do. I think that makes sense. And that was why I wanted to do that. I wanted to build it with a pipeline, with a CI, with all of that stuff, because it's more attuned to, like, in tune with the kind of work that I would do. So that's why I wanted to build it, and that's why it's a little more complex. I mean, it makes sense as uh, a thing to be able to talk about things that you can do. I think that's actually... The perfect platform to do that on. Yeah, you do want to make sure you have some 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 content on there, though. No, <laughs> you do I do want to make sure you have. You should write a. You should literally write a blog post, and this no, is not I even being pejorative. One. You should write a blog post about the CI about. Well, the I was site. going to. I was going. You to. should totally do that. I was going to, but then I was going. To, I was just going to talk about it here, and then write an article later. But I didn't want to. <clears throat> I, I feel like weird about like writing an article, like talking about the issues with something, if I don't actually understand how to like work out of them. Like it's possible that I could just be doing something wrong before I'm like, oh my God. And there's a way to write it where you're like, you know, I don't, I'm just like kind of airing it out here and just trying to ask for advice or, you know, write something, some issues down that I ran into. So somebody maybe doesn't run into them themselves. But I don't know. I just, I feel like if, if it gets too complainy, then you're kind of complaining about a product that you don't really understand. Well, I think maybe your your mental webhook for when to write a blog post is when you like figure something out. Yeah, and I haven't like, figured it out yet. I've got this. <laughs> well, it can be something. It doesn't have to be an entire system like that. It can be smaller pieces. Like yeah. when you figure out exactly your setup for getting Markdown into your contentful and served on your site, that could be one thing. How yeah, I serve and, Markdown yeah. with my contentful. Well, the thing is, that's why I didn't write the blog article yet because I kind of created like a kitchen sink article because I wanted to deal with the rich text editor and figure out how to format everything. Because like the blog, the, styling the blog was like, I actually like was the last thing I had to do and I kind of forgot I needed to do it because the rich text editor like implies that it works early on if you just like write some text. Yeah, it Just looks by like default, it, it works. Work. Yeah. But then you're like, you get in there and you're like, oh, what if I have to actually like format an image or format? What if I have a code block? What if I have a code block, which I knew was going to be a thing that I needed to do, but I wasn't like too worried about it because I thought it was a solved problem. But then I realized that it's a little more complicated than that. And I got highlight to work and I got it to style, but I had to do some like, you know, fun little importance and inherit CS, like inherit this property, like background inherit, important, like a lot of weird crap like that to like, get around terminal CSS styling, uh, having its own highlight theme, which, by the way, should be removable. 
You should be able to build well, it. I probably can actually. If I take their their terminal.css source. I was gonna ask, how did you import it into your project? It's an npm package. I just import oh, it and then well, and then okay. add imported the built CSS. Okay, well that's. But I could probably, but they don't. You should I don't, fork it. Oh, gee, I you know I don't have time for these since, things. Since you have so much time on your hands and you love CSS so much, you should fork totally. the CSS. No, you totally have to do that. I agree with you. Um, when I imported water CSS into my project, I actually literally just copy pasted the style sheet into another file. Mm-hmm. In my direct, in my, in my project, and so that actually helped out a little bit with that situation because I could go into the actual water CSS and make adjustments there, if I needed to. Like if yeah. there was some base level property that I couldn't import myself over, I couldn't you know kind of smash over. Then I went in there and just changed it. Yeah, but it I became used a little to... tricky because I had two different spread, uh, two different style sheets that were both kind of trying to talk over each other and. It can get pretty tricky, and that's that's the fun of CSS. That's the mm-hmm. joy of CSS. I'm totally being sarcastic about that. <laughs> yeah. So terminal CSS. Uh, it's weird because like the documentation site is what's actually in the source. That makes sense. It's just a, it's just an example. Oh, actually, no. Hold on. That's the source. The source of his project is actually the website and then in there is the lib terminal.css is the actual CSS, which is interesting. And then the MPM package is pointing at that. Yeah. And then when you, Im- when you import it, you import, I think the lib slash terminal.css. But it, you're only importing just the CSS, right? It's not. Actually yeah. I'm only importing the CSS. Yeah. Well, when you NPM install, does it give you that whole source? Yeah. Oh, jeez. But it's just in the, I mean, yeah, but that's, have you seen the garbage that's in so many NPM packages? I mean, yeah. Left pad and whatnot, but no, not even like that. <laughs> just like, have you seen the amount of like it's extra nonsense? Every project you check out, it's their whole GitHub repo. It's like I don't need your README in my project. Yeah, like unless you use like one of the um, one of the like things that manages mono repos. What gets published to npm is the whole mono repo. So if you check out yeah. like one thing, you're gonna get the whole thing. Yeah, unless. Unless they've gone through the work of, um, yeah. So he, so literally in his terminal, I might end up doing this inside of his terminal.css, he's just styled.hljs, comment, quote, variable, keyword, and it's all variables. Well, he it's smart because it is CSS variable. So like the highlight link color is the primary color. Yeah. <clears throat> so you could change the, if you changed the color of your theme, then it'd be super easy. The, the the yeah would be represented in the um in the highlight so yeah there's that which makes sense but it would be nice if it didn't do that well a lot of these css kind of minimal frameworks are designed just to be starters and cover enough of your base cases i don't think they're really designed to be as customizable as maybe we need them to be but then it's our responsibility as developers to the thing that we want on top of that and not be like, oh, dude that builds this free piece of open source software, like you should make your classes more flexible so that I don't have to use it more. Well, I mean, the whole thing is only 955 lines of CSS. That's pretty good. So, Pretty good. And a lot of it is just like referencing variables. Yeah, it covers a lot of cases or not that much code. I like little little CSS frameworks like that where it's not trying to 
do everything, but just gives you enough to look like somebody paid at least a little bit of attention to it. Like, mm-hmm. it just gives you enough to look decent. And that's all you really need. Yeah. And it doesn't look like bootstrap, so it makes you happy. I mean, my site looks pretty good now. And the nice thing is it also his doesn't have, um, it doesn't have uh, like grids. So it's literally just, he's just like use flex. Yeah, that's, that's I 100% agree with that. I think grids are outside the scope of something like that sort of thing. Grids are almost its own separate thing. Like, I don't know if I would be putting grids directly in there with the rest of my CSS. I mean, Bootstrap does it. But either way, so what I was doing, going back to what I was saying, is I, I went through and I kind of like built out the um, kitchen sink blog article, got it all to work. And then when I got in there and I actually like worked through, it took me, I don't know, like a few hours, but I worked through getting highlight to work. I had to actually import um, React highlight myself to get it to work for whatever reason. Um, I don't remember at this moment, but I got it all to work. I got it to highlight correctly. I got it to inherit the styles that actually uses the way that I'm defining highlight to look. And then I was like, well, I don't know if I, like I didn't understand at first because I thought the rich text field was what I wanted, which it does work. I mean, like I could write articles like this and it, you know, you can italicize things, you can create paragraphs, you can add images, you can add code blocks. But like I said, you can't define the language of the code block, which if I really wanted to get like super trick with Prism, you can't do that. You can't be like, oh, this is CSS, use a different theme. This is JavaScript, use a different theme or whatever. But Prism actually handles that, I thought. It does, but you have to you have to tell it the language type. You have to type. define it yourself. You or to, you have to supply the language type The yourself. language type, because it can't infer it. Interesting. So that's why you want Markdown. Yeah, because Markdown allows you to define the type of the code block with tick, 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 JavaScript code, yeah. and then tick, tick, tick. Tick, 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 uh, C. Mm-hmm. Everything is C. So it'd be tick, 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 C++ for all. In that case, I actually could probably just... You should just, defi- you should just define everything default everything to the C syntax yeah. highlighting. Yeah. And then when everybody's like, why is this, why is this JavaScript syntax highlighted in C? You can They'll be like, never know. Exactly. They'll never know. But no, I mean, like, it, it's good to have, like, themes where it recognizes that CSS is highlighted differently because sometimes you want to target certain things. Like, even if you look at my site, like, <clears throat> the render method and the text are the same color because without knowing what language I'm looking at, I don't understand that there's an inner class property or an inner class function of render. That's true, yep. So, like, it doesn't, I can't target the inner class property because it has no idea what that is. All it can do is highlight it as, like, keyword, global, like there's very highlight JS has like very basic types. Yes, basic code. Super basic types. code yeah. stuff. So I don't know. So I had that whole problem, which I got working. Uh, I had the whole problem with the with the CI. It's not really a problem, but like just getting the two CI environments to like talk correctly was really fun. And the other th- so that that was the whole thing. I'm not gonna lament on contentful, but that was the thing. I need to basically switch the blog article to being long text that I can write a markdown because I'm not going to write. I personally am going to write all my articles probably on iWriter or something or Bear, and then I'm just going to copy the text, paste them into Contentful when I'm done. So I can, basically I'm going to write on whatever device is in front of me, whether my Mac or my iPad or my phone, because all of them support Bear. I used to be in a, like a diehard iWriter person, but I just noticed that they updated IA Writer and it's not the same anymore. So I don't know what I'm gonna do with my life because Bear, like, is better technically. Bear you, like B A E R or B A E R. Yeah. 
You can get if you can get more used to the consolidated writers where you type in Markdown and then after you hit enter, it immediately formats it. Yes, so you do like pound called, header. That's called inline yeah. preview, I think. There's yeah. a couple different names for it, but I know exactly what you're talking about. That's what Bear is. So Bear doesn't have the side-by-side. And I used to be like a diehard side-by-side because I wanted yeah. to see, I wanted to physically see the Markdown at all times, but then be able to look on the right and see it formatted because I think like a coder. So then whenever I look at Markdown, I'm like looking at code, but then I want to be able to preview it on the right. In styled. Yep. I think what I'm going to end up doing is, you know, picking whatever Markdown writer I want and then being, and then syncing it with iCloud and being able to write um, articles wherever I want to. And then whenever I'm home near a computer, I'll actually take the Markdown. I mean, I could do it on my phone if I needed to. Take the Markdown, paste it into Contentful, hit publish, it'll go straight to my site. But I have to know that the Markdown. Is fully styled in the prism so that I know that like it's going to look correctly, look right. correct, yeah, prismatic or whatever the thing is in in Gatsby that parses the markdown and then creates the. <coughs> I think they wrote HTML their own markdown parser. I like the way this app looks a lot. Which one? Bear. Oh yeah, I paid for it a long time ago. I don't I don't use it, but um, I like how it has it. kind of the old Evernote style interface where it's like notes and then it's got columns and stuff. But you can go, can you go full screen with the writing part, whatever you want? Um, or full window, I guess. I honestly downloaded it and then, I don't know if I actually paid for it, but I downloaded it and then decided that I didn't like it because it wasn't, oh my God. Okay, so there's another thing that's like a little bit of an annoyance because I've been setting up a new Mac. Apple asks for your damn password so much. And it doesn't save it because it doesn't want to. It wants no. to respect your privacy, Greg. It no, doesn't no. want. It doesn't want to set it. a cookie. It doesn't want to. It doesn't want to be tracking where you're going or anything. No, man. I don't it's all think about that's that privacy. It. I think that I think that Mac OS is such a. I think it's getting better, but Mac OS is such a like a disjointed piece. Yes. To where like when you put your password for Apple into like the App Store. That is not the same thing as putting it into the iCloud settings of settings. Why wouldn't that all be, just be one thing, though? You would think that all of it would communicate with the keychain, which you know a Mac has, mm. understand that it knows what your Apple ID mm. password is, and then never ask you to do it again. It's all about the privacy, man. But then the next time like that I went into anything else, like I went to go into the App Store, it just kept asking me for my password, and eventually it's like, because the Mac has Touch ID, so eventually it was like, do you want to use Touch ID for purchases from now on? And I'm like, why didn't you just make that the default? All about the privacy. So that's all it is. So Bear looks really nice. I actually like this. There are a couple of other uh, Markdown editors that I, I've used that have the inline preview. Um, the one that comes to mind right away is Typora, mm-hmm. which is one that is cross-platform. Of course. Of course. The OSX version of Typora is the one that's in beta. Windows and Linux are full production. So how's that feel? How's that feel for a change? I Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. Typora looks really nice. Uh, it gives you the ability to have so different s- themes. It's so simple. Well, I think that's the idea. I know, but it's too simple. I like a little bit of less simplicity in my life. You, you want some complexity in your life? 
I just want like a actually no, it looks like the themes are better. Themes I don't know. are good, and it's <laughs> you can configure it with your favorite things, CSS. So you can actually kind of upload like this is really handy, and this is something I've seen in other Markdown editors as well. Is that you could upload your own CSS. So say if you know exactly how your site is going to be rendering this Markdown or whatever, you can just take that chunk of CSS, upload yeah. it into your CSS writer, and then preview it actually how it's going to look on your site in your editing tool, in your writing tool, before you ever copy and paste or anything. Hmm. So that's a nice little setup there. But we'll have links to that in the show notes. Well, so I think going a little further, so the, the next thing that I want to work on is one is that I want to be able to publish the staging, which I already lamented and talked about. I want to be able to take whatever I'm writing or whatever I'm doing, and when I want to publish it to staging, I don't want it to do it automatically because that was very annoying. Because when I'm like when I'm actually creating content, I think it's because I'm like I'm creating the site from scratch. So like I'm saving and creating module, like creating content. Yeah, you're types, always working on nodes, it. saving. I'm saving. I'm changing yeah. it, doing whatever, yeah. all kinds of stuff, and. It just ended up being that I was, I was just like it was constantly saving and changing everything and building and constantly building staging builds. So I don't want to do that. I kind of want staging to just not have CI, and then be able to trigger a build whenever I want to. But that goes against how Circle CI, Travis, and all those things work. It's not like Jenkins where you just go in and trigger a build. It goes against continuous integration, continuous deployment. Yeah, it basically does because. Whenever you go in and you trigger a build, it'll trigger a build using the last hash ID from before. From before. Um, it's also an extra step. Well, for staging, I want it to be manual because when usually when I'm working on the site myself, I'm like running it locally, changing content, which is super annoying because you have to restart Gatsby every time. That's true. I, but really I, understand, wish- I understand why they do it, but yes, it, it, in the development, it makes the development process slower, but it makes the performance of the per- production site faster, so I'm okay with it. Okay, well, here is a way to blow their mind, right? <clears throat> you know, you remember you remember Nodemon? Yes. Which people don't really use very much anymore because... Well, if you're doing local development of a... Of a like Node an, app. Of like an Express area. Yeah, yeah, you can, you can do it that way. But like, if you're just dealing with like React or something, we don't really do that because we have hot module reload, right? Right. So... so what they should do with Gatsby is they should just make it, they should go back to the way that Nodemon was, where if you want to like refresh the live content, I, I understand their point of view of not like allowing the content to run like with hot module reload, like whenever you change content, go refresh. Like that would kind of defeat the purpose because then the dev site wouldn't run as fast. Um, what they should do is they should just add the ability while you're captured in the terminal to just say like restart, just like type RS, hit enter. And then it would basically just know to only run the job that grabs the content from Gatsby or from Contentful again. And then Hot Module reloads the parts that are dependent on that piece of data. How's it parse that out though? It, what it's basically doing is it's literally downloading the content. I mean, I think it's, it, I'm pretty sure that it downloads the content first as like a JSON file. Yeah. And then runs the. But how does it, well, but how does it figure out which parts are dependent, right? Like say you say for example, on my site where you've got you're pointing at a ghost content endpoint, you've got a GraphQL layer, mm-hmm. and then you've got a handful of components and pages that are pointing. Like at which point do you say this component needs to be updated because this piece of content got updated? The minute you type RS, it re updates But how does it so it just re so it's just, just a rebuild. So how is that different from just rebuilding? Because you got a command C. 
wait and then wait two keystrokes. No, and then you gotta and then you gotta then start it again by saying yarn start or whatever, and then you have to wait for it to do the whole Gatsby build. You're gonna have to do that anyway. No, if you just typed RS, it would just be like a. It would just be. It's got to do the whole build anyway. Because what if you have? It doesn't uh, have to do the whole build. There's what if you parts- change your shade of blue on your on your component? I, all I'm saying is to do the <laughs> the phase that does the contentful download. <coughs> there's got to be. I agree with you. There's got to be a way to do that locally. I would love some sort of watcher. I don't think you need it on prod. I understand why they don't have it. I don't that. think you need it on prod. I don't think well, you should have it on prod. that's what CI is for. That's what CI is for. But the, I don't think it's that big a deal. I think the trade-off I find it very for, painful when I'm changing content. I'm like, why? The other thing you could do is just not on local, don't cache contentful. That would be so slow. Would it really? It would try to rebuild on every hot module reload. It would just request the data again. It's just calling an API. It doesn't take that long to download the content. But it's not that the downloading the content takes that long. Is that on top of the hot module reload for how often? Because you just got done saying that you you hot module reload so often, so many times. Well, that's why I'm saying make it manual. Type RS, type restart, and just then another it, key. It's just it's literally two additional keystrokes. No, but you don't got to stop the process and restart it. It's very annoying. I'm telling you, it's not even two. It's one because okay. you hit you, you hit Control, control C, C and, and you hit up. Yeah, it's annoying. So I it's dealt one. with it for it's one. Okay, well, I dealt with it for a long time. You go into Contentful, you change a piece of content and you're like, oh, wait, Gatsby's not going to see that. <clears throat> you got to restart the whole build. I think you need better content project management. I think you need to literally organize the, your Jira board a little bit better. No, it's, it's literally the way that it's, whatever, it's literally the way it's built. But I don't know. So there was that, was a whole thing. The, the deployment was a whole thing. Getting the blog style was a whole thing. Um, but the last, the, so basically to close that, the last thing that I want to do is I want to be able to make it so that whenever... I want to be able to write articles myself on something else besides Contentful and then like use the API to publish them to Contentful or something. like. Oh, this Contentful is like... Can you upload content via API? Yeah, you can do everything with Contentful. Interesting. They have a whole API. Or you could go the other route and just have a separate section in your Gatsby app that just reads markdown files and publishes them as static sites. Well, that's the thing is that I I could instead of using Contentful for my blog, I could literally just use a markdown file that I inside of Git inside of inside, inside, of, inside of, of Git app. yeah inside of Git. But then I would have to basically somehow write the article and then save it as a file and then Git committed, which would trigger a build. To yeah, that makes sense. That's what Data Homie does. That that was the whole. That was the initial. That was how Gatsby started in terms of being a static site generator, uh, turned into like a blogging platform, because it just became write some Markdown, check it in, boom, you have a website. Yeah, but that's the thing is that then that became limiting, and people started asking for more and more features. And I don't think Gatsby's a static site builder anymore. I don't think it is either. I think I had a I had a fun little argument with somebody on the internet where. There's been this running issue on Gatsby about whether or not the window is supported in node mode inside when it's like SSR mode. And people ask, like I asked originally, like why is window not available when Gatsby's running in SSR mode? And Kyle was like, well, because you're in SSR mode. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's 
true. That's yeah. right. Oh you yeah, are. you're right. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, you're in as a you're in node. Wait, wait. So you you thought of this? Oh, oh, oh okay. Oh, yeah, and right. then I was, and then I my first instinct because you can look back on the issue. I like commented on. It, I was like, well, can't you just can't you just like polyfill a window or like make it undefined or you do some webpack magic to make it like work? And then he's like, why would you do that? <laughs> no, he. I don't remember the conversation because it was a while ago, but. I started to think about it and I was like, because this guy asked the same question and I was like, well, because you have to think about it, that Gatsby's running in two different modes. One is running in SSR mode, it's building inside of Node, which some people don't understand that it's not, it's not, a, he's like, well, browsers, why do I have to, why do I have to check if a browser feature is available? And I'm like, you don't, have, you don't have a browser. You're not a browser, you're in Node. Do you realize that you're in SSR mode? Not, you're like not a browser. Not a browser. You're not in a browser. It's not only a browser tool. And I was like explaining to this guy, I was like, well, Gatsby runs in two modes. One is that it's actually a well, in reality, Gatsby only really runs in one mode. There's dev mode and then there's SSR mode. And yeah. then when it's deployed, it's a flat site. But there's no mode. There's no mode. So when you're running it in the browser, you're not really running Gatsby, you're running React. That's server rendered. And then hydrated from your client app. So it's like, yeah, there's some Gatsby APIs like links and stuff that run in client mode, but it's not like you're running a Gatsby server on the client. You're just no. running a website that has a few you're just convenience functions. Flat files, that's yeah, it. Yeah, and there's a few convenience functions like the router. And there's the an entire step in between the code that you write and the code that gets served on the page. Yeah. Completely different stuff. I think that stuff is brilliant, and that's why I enjoy using Gatsby so much. I do agree with you that the feature set has expanded quite a bit on top of what it originally was, but, 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 the reason why that is okay is that it still retains the original purpose and the original abilities of what it was initially designed to do, mm -hmm. right? If you wanted to start a completely no CMS blog today, you do Gatsby install, and you... It gives you the starter blog template out of the box. It's just one package away, and you have a statically served, statically built pages from just Markdown that is in your repo. It still does that. Mm. But the brilliant thing is that he's been able to expand and extend the feature set on top of that to where if you want something more complicated, like build a contentful integration, use the rich text, but also the long text, integrate ghosts into your thing. Bring in third-party CSS, but then also not third-party CSS. Bring in Highlight.js and do all these things while still retaining the original. That's where it's really, really good and, and a really great piece of technology, and that's why I enjoy using it. Yeah. But I think the interesting thing is, like, you look at, you look at Netlify, for instance, and Netlify adds in. And Netlify doesn't require that you use Gatsby. It's just the two work really well no, together. No, they work really nicely together, though. Well, that's because one or one of them did that. One of them well, having either the, both work together or one of them made it work really well with well, the other Well, it's just like Gatsby has, it's just Gatsby built, right? Mm -hmm. And so the fact that you just have one command that does all of that for you and it just gives you a directory for it, those things, it's almost like Net, I, I bet you what it was is that Netlify saw that in Gatsby and saw that in some other static generators and was like, okay, that's the way of the future. Let's just say, hey, put your build command here, put your directory here, and that's it. Yeah. It seems like it was built around the ecosystem of how static site generators like to build sites. Yeah, but the thing I was going to get at is that Netlify adds all those features that allows it to do like automatic rebuilds on content change and all that stuff. 
um, like that stuff is built into Netlify. So Netlify yeah. adds that whole suite of like uh, automated, um, like automated uh, builds and uh, like rebuilding on content changes. Like it does that part that Gatsby doesn't do very well on its own, which yeah. I don't think it's even supposed to. But the thing is, is that they're the last like big product roadmap update that they provided from Gatsby. They said that they're adding in preview links, the ability for you to set up previews. In Netlify? No, in Gatsby? Like directly, either directly in Gatsby or they're making it easier for Netlify to do it. I don't know what their plan was, but That's interesting. the last like set of news that I saw coming out of Gatsby like during one of their um, AMAs on wherever was that they, um, they were adding the ability to do previewing and they were adding the ability to do themes. Yeah, themes, I, I know that they've been talking about. Oh, since. start using Gatsby Preview, so it's there. Yeah, so themes has been a thing since I think like the beginning of this year. Mm-hmm. They have like a site up and everything. Yeah, this one, they have a site up right now. If your team uses Gatsby for building websites or web apps, Gatsby Preview lets you make changes, see content changes as soon as you make them, which is very similar to Zite Now, which does the same thing. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Now.sh. And, and Grokish kind of thing. Yeah, I saw, it's funny because I was, um, there's a guy who, there's a thing in, I don't want to talk about Destiny, but there's like a thing in Destiny right now that has like a new, has like a new, um, like reason for like a configuring website, essentially. I don't really want to like get into it, but like there's these combinations for building armor and weapons. Oh man. But you have to like, you have to understand like what pieces to use. It's like building it or crafting it. And someone built like a website to allow you to calculate what pieces to use to make certain pieces of armor. And it was funny because he he just like deployed it directly to Zite. So it's like blah, 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 website.now.sh. And I was like, huh, I know what that is. I know exactly I know what exactly that is. exactly what you're doing right there. That's very interesting stuff. That's pretty cool. So, yeah. So I don't know. But that's like a big problem is like trying to figure out how to get the... Whenever, so the other thing is, it's like finally getting back to my point. I'm a little brain dead because I've been out for like two weeks and I've been thinking, but thinking about anything in particular. But like, I want to be able to write my articles from somewhere other. Oh my God, watch. I want to be able to write my articles from somewhere else. It's great audio. <laughs> write my blog articles from somewhere else other than the contentful um, UI, like web UI. Other than from within the CMS. Yeah, I, w- I want to be able to write it inside of like a markdown and just be like published like you can with Ghost and, and like tons of other tools. Like in, like I, I um, what's it called? Um, the, the markdown editor I just talked about. <laughs> Air? No, the other one. iWriter. iWriter, yep. You can just like take it and publish it to Ghost. Yes. Yes, that so is I, a new feature in Ghost. I want to be able to do that, but I don't know, I don't really know how I can do that Seems like it's going to be a lot more work. But that would be the the ultimate goal is that I could have a tool that would essentially be able to, you can write an article and then it would publish it to a long text field. Like and create a new node of this title and then put the long text in there and then just publish the article and then it would immediately go to, immediately go to prod. And then if you edited it, it would update it. I feel like the way to do that is from raw markdown files from within the repo. Yeah, but and have I, it trigger, I don't trigger really, a webhook from within GitHub. But then I would have to have a markdown editor that's capable of committing to a Git repo. Yeah, it's called Terminal. Yeah, it's called I can't do Terminal on my iPad. Oh, <laughs> or, my, or my phone. I want to be able to oh. write when I'm remote. Oh. Oh my god. What oh. Are you doing with your Android phones. Oh. 
What is this? Oh, there's, a, there's an app called Termux. Yeah, you can. You can. There are terminals that you can use on iOS devices. They, they just, don't work very well. <laughs> well, they don't have access to any of the subsystem because they're like in a. They're like a like an yeah, app that's embedded have, with a terminal. You have full blown access. <clears throat> you don't have full blown access. Yeah, to yeah, your you full system. Yeah, you do. Did you root your you phone? You have pseudo to your phone. Yeah. Did you root it? No. Can you get into like the folders and then you can install apps from there. You can install. I did an npm install one time. I pulled. The, I actually pulled. Just messing around with the terminal. I pulled down my website code from get. You can run I did it. Get clone. Can you run it? And then I didn't get very far. I just I remember I downloaded it and I hit npm install and it ran the whole thing and installed everything. But then, did you try to like? Was it like try to serve it? Dot eight thousand. Colon eight thousand. I didn't get that far. But the thing is, Git works. And you have access to a file system, unlike some machines. I don't want to talk about it. Very interesting. <laughs> although, although there's no scenario where I would ever tell you to buy an Android tablet. Well, they're, now, they're, a Chromebook. Well, they're getting rid of Android tablets. Google. Is, well, Google has said that they're not going to build anymore. Which, yeah. it, Android tablets died a long time ago. That's not. That's that's not a thing because Chromebooks are a thing and Fuchsia is a thing now. Did you see this? That that there's a there's an actual Fuchsia developer portal now. It's not vaporware anymore. It actually exists. No, I don't pay attention to these kind of things. Well, you're going to have to pretty soon, so. Not really. Okay. I'm just going to keep using Apple products and Okay, well, you'll be one of those. But you guys. know the thing the thing is like the, the Apple would say like do you really do you really need to be git cloning and running node packages on your iPad? If you're telling me that's my new computer then yes. Well, I mean I would agree, but I think that for 99% <laughs> of the people that own these tablets they don't need to do that. Okay, well if you're if the future that Apple is selling me is that an iPad is my new computer. That MacBook Pros. I don't MacBooks think they're telling. Don't I don't think they're anymore. telling you that developers. Well, here's the here's the bind that the, the, they've painted themselves into a corner, right? Because you can only build iOS apps on macOS, right? But nobody builds apps for macOS anymore because of a thing called Catalyst, which used to be called Marzipan. Mm, yeah, Marzipan. now they have Swift UI so coming. Now, so now macOS apps are iOS apps, but you need macOS to build iOS. So now you're in this cycle of chicken or the egg so if that if this ipad is my new computer this has to be able to build an ios app it's interesting how the new version of uh the os for this is not called ios anymore it's ipad os ipad os which it was it was already like that already that ios on ipads was already different from ios it already forked if you will but my point stands is that I don't think they understand how fragile the iOS ecosystem is when it is completely and 100% reliant on macOS, which is the redhead stepchild in the room. But they're they're doubling down on, I, I don't know about hardware yet, but they're doubling down on the OS of Here, Mac. So here's an, here, here's an idea. Here, here's a, here's a, mm-hmm. a scenario. Mm-hmm. When the only machine... This is the scenario of Albert Hates Apple. Well, let's imagine for a second there are no MacBooks or MacBook Pros. There's only iPad and iMac. Mm-hmm. Why would they do this? But okay. If I want to, if I'm an iOS developer, mm-hmm. if I build native iOS apps for a living and I work remotely, I live out of a suitcase and I get on a plane. Yeah, but you're such a, this is of, such a very specific there person. There are lots of people who do this. There are lots of people who I don't are know, 100% I remote yeah. on purpose by choice. What machine do I buy? 
Well, I don't know if I, you're you're presuming a world where there is no MacBooks at all. I don't think that's going to happen. I think that's coming much sooner than you think it is. I don't think it is. I think it absolutely no, is. No, I think what's going to happen is they're going to they're going to launch ARM Macs and they're going to be garbage. Hmm. Who knows? They're going to be they're not going to be powerful enough. They'll be able to You know what the you know what the sh- thing is? Those ARM Macs will be able to build iOS apps. But they will be But they will not devices. be able to build C++ Oh no. anymore. They will not have a GCC compiler. They won't be able to do anything except build no, iOS except apps. build iOS apps. Yeah. And run Photoshop. For sure. That's it. Greg, where can people find you on the internet? Where, where can they find where me Where can the they internet? find you on the internet? If they wanted to communicate Just with you. At Greg Gorski on Twitter. I on guess. Twitter mm-hmm. and at GitHub, right? Sure, yeah. Okay. Pretty I'm, much everywhere. I'm at Al Park on Twitter. Mm-hmm. The show is at a public function on Twitter. You can tweet at us there. We put up new episodes every Tuesday very early in the morning. It is technically Tuesday, Pacific Standard Time. We're also on the web. This is episode number 28. All the show notes for today's episode will be at publicfunction.show backslash 028. And listen to all of our episodes, all of our show notes there. You can contact us via the contact form, publicfunction.show backslash contact. You can also email us hello at publicfunction.show. If you say something nice, we'll read it on air. I'll have Greg read it. If you say something to me, we're not gonna, we're definitely not gonna read it. But the nice ones will have Greg read. He'll he'll do like a, you have like a funny voice, you have an announcer voice. I'm sure I can figure it out. I think it'd be good. I feel like some of them would be good in announcer voice, but I'll put you there. Greg, do you have anything else you want to talk about? No. Okay. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>